Good afternoon, and welcome to Spokane Public Radio's Northwest Arts Review, a half hour exploring the people, places, and events forming the rich arts tapestry we enjoy here in the inland Northwest and our wider Intermountain Northwest region. I'm Jim Tevenin, pleased to be your guide on this journey. Today, Chris Massini welcomes Pulitzer Prize-winning author and next Hagen series speaker, Hilton Owls. We'll also meet Gatti Nicario Gilan, artist and recent immigrant to Spokane from the Philippines. Music is from another of the families who contributed to our latest kids' concert. That's all ahead on this edition of Northwest Arts Review. For Spokane Public Radio, I'm Chris Massini. My guest today is Hilton Alls. He's been a contributor to The New Yorker since 1989 and a staff writer there since 1994. He's been the recipient of many honors for his theater and arts criticism and other writings, including a Guggenheim Fellowship in 2000 and Lambda Literary's Trustee Award for Excellence in Literature in 2016. In 2017, he was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Criticism. He's also a curator, artist, and playwright, and the author of two books which blend together memoir, criticism, and cultural commentary, The Women, published in 1996, and 2013's White Girls. Alz is also an associate professor of writing at Columbia University's School of the Arts and has taught at Yale University, Wesleyan, and Smith College. Hilton Alz is the next speaker in Spokane Community College's Hagen Center for the Humanities Diversity Dialogues series, Conversations on Race and Equity. He'll be hosting a virtual event on Wednesday, June 2nd. Hilton Alls, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So as I mentioned in that introduction, you've been at this work as a writer and critic at The New Yorker for over 30 years. And Ah! (laughs) I know, it's shocking. I'm going to pass out. (laughs) And I think... You know, like everyone, I'm sure the last year has been a a remarkable one in so many ways. What was the last year like for you, both as someone trying to be a critic of the arts when a lot of arts events weren't happening and also as just like a person living in New York City? Yes. Well, there's the magic of books. Um, So that was very helpful. And then there was the magic of these extraordinary occasions on television. There were many programs that I found very enriching or that I had never really looked at before. So all of that was great. But on a personal note, it was just a very difficult year. I had non-COVID pneumonia twice. And then um, someone, I, a, a lovely, great person I was involved with, um, that was the disillusion of that close relationship um so it just was the worst um 
But um, one of the things that has helped me really is writing um, during this period that mm. um, it has been a, a stabilizing influence and also um, galvanizing. It was a great year to really sort of think about moving forward as an artist and what it was that I wanted to achieve, achieve in the in the time that's left to me on this planet. So it was um, very it was excruciating personally, but as an artist, it was incredibly helpful. I'm talking with Hilton Als. He is a staff writer at the New Yorker and the next speaker in Spokane Community College's Diversity Dialogues series, Conversations on Race and Equity. So. Speaking of writing, one of your pieces of writing that really stood out to me from the past year was um, the the piece called Homecoming in the magazine. The online version is called My Mother's Dreams for Her Son and All Black Children. And Mm -hmm. it's it's a personal history where you talk about an uprising in your childhood neighborhood in, in 1967 in Brooklyn and then connecting that to, you know, the events of last summer and going beyond even so that that piece of writing is that the type of thing you're talking about in terms of like yes. the change yes. that happened yeah yes. that felt it different was, it, it, it was a um i would i would work on that piece i was not feeling well and i would work on that piece a little bit every day and it was a it was a piece of writing that not only centered me but it was also an opportunity to declare that i was alive and that I was going to live, that all of the sort of chaos of that time in my neighborhood could be redemptive is the word that comes to mind for all of us, meaning that we were, we had taken so much for granted, whether it be how race was played out in, in New York, to the climate, to any number of things. It just was an opportunity for us to feel uh oh, I better really think about this. And so writing that a little bit every day and getting better physically and walking a little bit every day seemed to go hand in hand. It was almost sort of like a um, meditation. And of course it's very different than other things in the New Yorker of mine because it's not about an event or yeah, it's not about a, it's not a discussion of anything but myself, really. And I think that one of the things that that kind of writing teaches you is how not to sentimentalize on the page and in life. Yeah, that that's an interesting point, because there's obviously a, a really intense emotion in that piece. And particularly towards the end, there's a real anger that comes through in the writing not just yes. at not just at the injustices of racism, but at like the expectations of black artists like yourself to explain those injustices to yes. a largely white liberal audience, which I just want to call out and say is essentially what you're doing right now, talking on public radio. Yes, um, but I don't think that that ends. I don't. Um, it's a it's a difficult question to ask because um, here's what I think will change because of this year or this time vis-a-vis race. And I think it has a lot to do with how we can be honest with each other about what irritates people about this particular time. Hmm. 
And what irritates most white men that I've met during this period is that they have to think about it. Um, it's less of a discussion with women. I'm talking about white women whose behavior was um, very different very quickly. You know, if I was waiting online in a small shop, none of the women would jump the line. They would ask me if I was online. And, that, and that's a small thing that I'm talking to you about, but I have to tell you, it's an extraordinary thing to be um, asked if you're online. It's a very rare occurrence in my life that I've been asked anything that had to do with my presence other than the common assumption, which is that I'm gonna you know, rob you or mess with you in some way. To be asked the human question of, are you online or is that your bag or whatever was very new in my experience. And so the common courtesy that makes all of our lives better in the chaos that we call the modern world had rarely been extended to me. And I think that that's what's been different is that there has been a push toward um, courteous behavior. I mean, that seems like just such a low bar. I mean, that's just, it's like, that's the, the bare minimum of like recognizing somebody's humanity and right to exist in the world. Is that... I mean, as you sort of recognize that, is that frustrating to to realize that that that's what the last year has has resulted in? No, I think it's better than nothing. <laughs> I mean, my expectations are pretty low. Um, I'm not saying that it doesn't make me angry. Um, and thank you for pointing that out in the piece. It's you know, but to expect something is to be is to let yourself be open to a kind of hurt, inevitable hurt or vulnerability. And to be racially slimed hurts. It's not, a, it's not an abstraction, but it's, it's more common than not. Um, and I'm hoping that these feelings that I have about the world can continue to shift a bit. They, they did shift a bit, during this period when, as I said, those women were paying attention. And the men that we've been reading about in the newspapers, whether they're ranging from Brett Kavanaugh to some idiot doing an anti-Asian hate crime, is that now what's making them angry is that they have to pay attention because we're watching them. It was just part of behavior before. And now we know that it's aberrant behavior for everyone. It's I don't think that we would have had this moment had people in general not been affected by Trump, by violence, by um, people dying of drug overdoses. I think it became such a general problem that people had to see what had been happening to people of color and women all along. So shifting gears a little bit, you're one of the last speakers in this diversity dialogue series that Spokane Community College has been doing all year long. And, um, you know, we've heard from fiction writers and poets and essayists and professors from a bunch of different disciplines. One of the mm. first people I talked to was your colleague at The New Yorker, Kevin Young, who's the poetry oh, yes. editor. 
And one of the things he talked about was how he really liked being a poetry editor because you can respond so immediately to what's happening in the culture versus, you know, his work as a museum curator, for example, where it's a much slower timeline to, to sort of put together something to to show to the public. And it made me wonder um, where criticism fits in that, because a lot of what you're doing is either interpreting a new work of art or an existing work of art, but for the current moment and what's happening well, in the it's culture. Funny. It's funny, but I think, but I've always thought of myself when I started the theater criticism, I always thought of myself as a um, reporter first, mm. and not mm -hmm. a critic, that I was bringing to the um, magazine things that had never, that had not really been covered before in the magazine. So I, was, I wanted very much to be a person who brought lots of different things to the magazine culture-wise, and I think I have. And the, the important part of it is that it's not really just about these times for me. It's been all the time for me. I have tried really in the guise of journalism or whatever you want to call it, to alert people to many different ways of thinking and, and looking. And so for me, it just, it doesn't feel like an unusual time, it just feels like a recognized time mm. um, that I've been trying to do this work for a very long time. And I'm glad that culturally and personally, we're catching up to it. My guest has been Hilton Alls, staff writer and critic at The New Yorker and author of the books White Girls and The Women. He's the next speaker in Spokane Community College's Diversity Dialogues series, for which Spokane Public Radio is a media partner, and he'll be hosting a live virtual event on Wednesday, June 2nd. You can find details at scc.spokane.edu slash Hagen Center. Hilton Owls, thank you so much. I really appreciate oh, it. Oh, it was great to meet you. Thanks, Chris. And with that interview, we sadly bid farewell to colleague Chris Massini, who moves on to new adventures. Chris has been part of Northwest Arts Review since his birth almost three years ago. His knowledge, especially of the inland Northwest literary scene, his talents as an interviewer, and his positive and cheerful presence contributed substantially to this program and to the overall Spokane public radio scene. He will most certainly be missed. Farewell, and all best wishes for the journey, Chris. Last week, we began a four-week presentation of performances from our most recent KPBX Kids concert, Sibling Revelry. Today, we welcome the Chens, 12-year-old Sheba and 13-year-old Solomon, daughter and son of Archie Chen and Rona Gouldson Chen. Both kids played Bach. We heard some of Solomon's playing of the Italian concerto at the beginning of the program. Now it's Sheba's turn. She plays one of Sebastian Bach's Little Preludes.
Spokane artist mentor Danny Carmen has been diligent in recommending artists for introduction on Northwest Arts Review. Most we've talked with grew up in the inland Northwest, not our guest today. Gati Nekario Gilan immigrated to Spokane just about two years ago from the Philippines and has been busy establishing himself in our community. Let's meet him. Growing up, I really am into performing arts. So I love to dance and I love to to sing and I want to be in in school performances. And then I always awarded as the best in art. So it was in elementary and in high school, I was like the artist of the year. In college, I paused my artistic skills because I need to work while in college. So it was in high school, elementary, that I got all these experiences. Mm -hmm. You say also that you are an educator. What's your background in that? Yeah, um, I finished my bachelor's degree, my master's, and my doctorate. I have a PhD in education. And thankfully, my PhD that I earned from the Philippines is equivalent in the U.S. I'm just waiting for an opportunity for me to land a teaching job. I prefer to be in the college because in the last 10 years, I've been teaching in the college level, teaching future teachers. All right. Very good. Have you been able to work at all in uh, theater and or dance since your arrival here in Spokane? Yeah, I was part of the It's a Wonderful Life of Spokane Civic Theater. It was in December. Mm-hmm. And then I had a, a several additions, too, that I learned from it. I was it, part of the the Little Mermaid of the Spokane Children's Theater right after that. We were, weren't able to finish the entire run because it was because of pandemic. So halfway, we have to close the performances. And then same year, I got in for The King and I at Spokane Valley Summer Theater. But then again, because of pandemic, they postponed it. So probably we will be performing that next year, June, The King and I. But I got a call from Spokane Valley Summer Theater. They want me in for The Little House on the Prairies. It will be this July. Very good. It's good that you and everyone else who is connected with the theater and other performing worlds are beginning to have mm-hmm. their their voices and onstage movement and all being uh, heard and seen again. So good good for you on that. Let's focus a little bit about your, your work in visual arts. It's been part of you since you were quite young. Yeah, um... I really like to draw and sketch, but because in the Philippines, I came from a very poor family. So for us, I can't speak for the entire Philippines, but we need to have a degree to be successful in life. And I don't think being an artist or pursuing a degree in art would help us get out of poverty. That's why I took up education. Mm -hmm. But however, as I practice my teaching and as I become a grade school teacher for quite a while, I never had a training, but I just focus on on the curriculum. There's this festivity in the Philippines, particularly in Cebu, where I'm in, which is called Sinologue. It's a grand festival. So I've been part of it, uh, doing huge props and backgrounds. But it's never been it's never been like a career or something that I've been 
doing some commission stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's just like some volunteers. So before I left the Philippines, I volunteered to do a mural of one of the public schools. So I did a mural for their multi-purpose stage for kids. It's a school where my niece also taught, and so or until now has been teaching. So it was a service. It's all just been service and all. And so and when I got here in the U.S., I was particularly in Spokane. I was kind of like amazed by the, a lot of murals in the city. Mm-hmm. There's just a lot. So I went on taking photos me posing and with the murals in my background and I posted in my Instagram and then I landed to the Garland Art Alley. There's just a lot of murals there. And so I took photos, I uploaded in my social media and tagged the Garland Business District and it reached to the attention of the president, hmm. <laughs> Julie. She reached out to me, I introduced myself and I said, I can do a mural in our alley if that's something that you are you if you will welcome me to do that. But I don't have enough funds because I, at that time I still don't have a work. And so she said, "We'll make it work." So I volunteered. I have one mural in the Garland Art Alley, and with the help of a lot of people, some donations, I was able to have to to have paints and stuff for me to to finish it. And that's how it all started. All right. Now, for those who are unfamiliar with it, the Garland Art Alley, where is that? It's uh, south of the Garland Business District between Post and Monroe. All right. Very good. There's just a lot of beautiful murals there. Mm -hmm. How would you characterize your style of art? and or what subjects fascinate you for representing in your art? I am really into 2D art and more on more on 2D illustration, illustrator type. Knowing that there are a lot of very good artists in Spokane's that are into 3D, I thought of if I want to pursue this as as something that I will be known for here, I think I need to think of a style where I can be different. And, mm-hmm. and, and right at that very moment, I thought of, I might make Philippine art and culture as my subjects. Ah. So it's more of introducing the Philippine culture in this side of the world or in this, in this side of the U.S., Those who see your work in which you're trying to uh, portray the spirit of the the Philippines, are there things that they would see particularly or especially that would be essentially Filipino? Yeah. What I usually do are, it's either, I feature a Philippine folk dance, I feature a local fabric weaved by an indigenous tribe, or I feature a tribal minority in the Philippines, or an icon, or a symbol. These are very Filipinos. And in fact, when I have my, when oh, every time I have displays or every time I create one, when I post it in my social media, I always put a background, a story about it, to make it more meaningful. Mm-hmm. 
And the reason why I'm very confident about the subjects that I create is because I am a cultural dancer. I'm the vice president for Philippine Folk Dance Society in the Philippines. And so I really know what's authentic culture in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. Are there any other places Uh uh, besides the Garland Art Alley where one of your murals or other work is viewable? Oh, yeah. My second and my third murals are at Mad Collab Studios. It's a new art facility. It's at 3038 East Trent. They will have their grand opening on the 29th of May this month. So I have one indoor mural there, which I featured a Philippine folk dance, Sinkil. And just last week, I finished an outdoor mural in the same venue. All right. Gati, thank you so much for your time and for introducing us to you. We wish you the best and are really anxious to check out the murals that you've just done. Thank you. Thank you also for this opportunity. Also a part of Sheba and Solomon Chen's performances was music by Dmitry Shostakovich. Both played from Dances of the Dolls. First, we'll hear Sheba playing the lyrical waltz. Thanks for listening to Northwest Arts Review. I'm Jim Tevenin. Help today came from Chris Massini and Vern Windham. We're grateful as well for the contributions of Hilton Al's, Gatti Nicario Galin, Solomon Chen, and Sheba Chen. Please join us again next week for another Northwest Arts Review on Spokane Public Radio. We go out with Solomon Chen playing The Last Dance, from Dmitry Shostakovich's Dances 
of the dolls.